and welcome to Underground Magnolia Podcast, Elevated Entertainment, with me, the one and only Desiree Valto, in the whole wide world. On this episode of Underground Magnolia Podcast, I'm chatting with the legendary Melba Moore, who's back with new music. But don't call it a comeback. The singer never stopped making music. Now, for those of you needing a refresher of what the incomparable Melba Moore has accomplished, here we go. With three Grammy nominations under her belt, she has released over 20 albums since 1970 and earned several R&B top 10 hits and two number one R&B singles. The number ones include A Little Bit More, a duet with Freddie Jackson, and Falling, both in 1986. Before her successful recording career, the New York City native and former public school music teacher was a Broadway star. Her first gig was in the original cast of Hair in 1968. She replaced Diane Keaton and became the first African-American woman to step in for a white actress in a lead role on Broadway. Two years later, she won a Tony for her performance as Ludie Bell Gussie Mae Jenkins in Pearly. With several Broadway credits to her name, in the mid-1990s, she set another first when she became, yes, the first Black woman to play the lead role of Fantine in Les Mis. In addition to her singing and acting, she was also a civil and equal rights activist. She marched arm-in-arm with Coretta Scott King and Reverend Jesse Jackson and worked closely with the National Council of Negro Women and the National Political Congress of Black Women. In 1990, the five-octave singer's activism led to her version of Lift Every Voice and Sing being entered into the congressional record as the second official Black national anthem. In 2017, it was added to the United States National Recording Registry and preserved by the Library of Congress as an American oral treasure. Melba recorded the song with Stevie Wonder, Dionne Warwick, Anita Baker, Bobby Brown, Freddie Jackson, Jeffrey Osborne, the Clark Sisters, and Stephanie Mills. The first version recognized by the Library of Congress was the 1923 version by Manhattan Harmony 4. Lift Every Voice and Sing was, of course, written and produced by James Weldon Johnson and his brother, John Rosamond Johnson, in 1900. Later this year, Melba, who has continued serving the community, will receive a special acknowledgement from President Joe Biden. Now that you're all caught up on Melba's fascinating career, let's hear from her by kicking things off about how she never stopped recording, the importance of sustaining Black music, and how her daughter helped shape her new music. I've had lots and lots of good stuff out here over the last 10, 15, 20 years. In the old days, you had like a few major, especially black radio stations. So that was Main Street. So like everybody heard you if it was a hit. Now there's so many different, I guess that's why they call it streamings, different areas that you can have a million seller and there'll be like tons of people who won't know that you had a record. So I think that's kind of how it's been for me. I've had like I have like three records out now that are on the charts. 
That's so important because the music landscape now is so different. Radio is so right. different. You right. know, you have to kind of, you have to look for the music, especially right. if you're looking for artists that you may think you haven't heard in a while, you have to find them. And how are you dealing with that? You know, when you do have to say, no, look, I have been out here. I have been, I have been working. Guess what? I'm getting used to that too. <laughs> but very well, just because one of the times when my career really shut down, it was during the time, maybe say 15, 20 years ago, when we were starting to cross over internet and what we actually have that's blossomed now. And I was trying to get to understand computers and how to do that because I didn't really have anything else. And I wasn't a business person, but I didn't have a manager or anything. And I considered, you know, maybe going back to teaching school, which was my first profession. But I said, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Let me just struggle and see if I can get up. And then the constant effort to keep getting up and getting up, getting up, I've become very diverse. And one of the things that seemed to have been growing at that time was dance music. Now, it may seem like in one way that it's always been there and it's always been a certain type, but especially anything that Black people have done, because we're still trying to overcome the fact that we came here as slaves and the world is still trying to treat us that way. But that's a challenge for us to always be creative and not just lay down and die because somebody said you're not relevant. So <laughs> since we keep getting up, we keep reinventing things. And one of the things that's continued to reinvent itself is a variety now. We have a, a variety of types of dance music. Now, for me and the people in my era, that kind of began with Van McCoy back in the 70s, I guess, with what we now call disco. <laughs> and starting to perform for television to tracks. And so I didn't have no band. I didn't have no manager. But so I'd be calling people myself trying to get work. And I, I couldn't ask people for the prices that I had before. So I had to try to get people to hire me who would hire me to perform, but to tracks. And they didn't want to because everybody still wanted a live band. But a lot of times they still needed entertainment and they couldn't afford to pay, you know, $10,000, $30,000. They could afford to pay $10,000 or less for a star because I was a star, but I didn't have no entourage. <laughs> <laughs> it was just me and my tracks. <laughs> so I survived through that. But through that time, dance continued to develop. Now we have regions that are like really special in those areas. Like, for instance, Chicago has created step music or developed out of that. We have, I guess, what we call R&B, which could be any tempo, which basically means black music, music right. <laughs> which at first, of course, we were relegated to. And of course, everybody was wanting to cross over because we just wanted a huge audience and we're still trying to be first class citizens musically, too. So we have forerunners like people like Janet Jackson, Prince, Michael Jackson, who are now called pop because they, they were able to. Crossover. <laughs> yeah, what? Well, nothing's going to change you from being black, hopefully. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. because things went that way, they've evolved. And I guess I'm saying the same thing. And so, in some cases, like I have not been as big as, say, as Michael Jackson or somebody. So, by virtue of that, too, there are a lot of people who say, oh, she went away. I didn't. I just went somewhere else. And maybe you weren't interested in that or you weren't aware of it or whatever. And I, I'm just trying to say that. And and you said, how has it been for me? 
it's been the way that everything has had to go so that we are technical now and we are pretty much, especially since the pandemic for these last two years and everybody's been shut down. It's kind of made the playing fields kind of even, except that because it happened to me individually, I'm kind of ahead. So I've been evolving. So I got all this new music out over the last 10, 15 years that many, many people know about. For instance, say like D Nice, you know who he is, right? Yes. So <laughs> now, since he and other people in the, who essentially continue to develop the, the dance genre yeah. have always been aware of me. Now I'm auntie. Yeah. And I'm glad that you said that because there's still this constant battle. There is so much of the music, your music, of course, included, and all this great music where the young people just don't know about it. And we constantly have to remind them that is a sample of so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. Yeah, on your record right now, you're sampling your auntie. (laughs) Right. In other words, we have to teach them what is their heritage, just like you would if it was just history, if it was just living. Right. So it's definitely, especially for Black music, for the Black music in quotes, it's a constant reminder. But we're constantly (laughs) being uh, excluded from American history. We're the foundation of it. Not by ourselves, but we can't be excluded because without us, you wouldn't be. Right. So it's definitely a constant. No, we need to we need to remind you, (laughs) you know, of where this music comes from and what's currently being sampled. Well, there's that. But I'm also saying, too, since God has given me my good health and ability to continue to do my work, it's my privilege now to say, no, this is where it came from. This is how it was. And I'm here to pass it on to you. It's not dead. It wasn't just in the past. And even if it were, it's a foundation. So you need to have it, not just remember. And if you want to have that as part of your favorite music, along with everything else, we're not excluding anything, but we can't be excluded either, especially as it is not only the foundation of Afrocentric culture, but it's part of America and world history. Right. Have you changed your current music in any way or are you doing things the same. Does that make sense? I would have kept it the same because I don't know anything else. But fortunately, I have a daughter. (laughs) Um, My ex-husband and I brought her up in in the industry and she says, Ma, would you listen to this? And I'm I'm talking about my current single. That's the latest example I have of younger people bringing me new music and allowing me to at least try it to see if I could adjust to it. And I have been able to So I'm making the changes, but not because I wouldn't know how to, but because I feel I'm going to give you the history, but I'm not going to insist that you just stay in my bubble. Otherwise, I can't stay relevant and you can't know what your your foundation is. Mm -hmm. So it's it's, it's an exchange now so that you hear the music. So you say, oh, wow, look at Melba. Look what she's doing. Oh, she's a legend. You know, and if I don't say anything, I'm taking credit that's not mine. And then eventually, you know, I may believe that. I'll get caught off on my own ability to remain relevant. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your new music. Last November, you released So In Love. Tell me about that song and the inspiration and the collaboration with your daughter. Well, it was first brought to me by my daughter. Her name is Charlie and her uncle, Bo, who, of course, is uh, my ex-husband's brother. So, you know, that collaboration has not been easy. <laughs> But, you know, I had to let bygones be bygones. And I think that if I didn't have a daughter and I'm just me by myself, I'd be thinking about myself and what he did to me and what's wrong. I couldn't get past whatever it was, put it aside and say, OK, 
let me listen to the listen to the song. But having said all that, I listened to the song. I said, well, baby, how am I going to sing this song? She's all whispering and everything. I'm a belter. <laughs> so she said, Ma, just try it. <laughs> and of course, one of the reasons I was encouraged to try it was because it was written and produced by Ronnie's song, Ronnie Harris. And I've been collaborating with him for years and years and years. And always in the studio with him, he's able to, because he's a singer as well as a songwriter and a producer uh, and a friend, to kind of exchange with me and go through a process that allows me to use some of the different areas of my thought process and translate that to my voice to make the changes so that I'm still myself, but I've grown into some other sounds that I probably would not if these other entities that are really part of my family. I mean, in some cases, not my blood family, but they say, Miss Moore, would you please <laughs> listen to this and see if this might be possible for you? So you, you continue to let some of the old things go so that you can bring some new things in to refresh yourself. So I said, okay, well, I'll try. When they played me back the rough mixes, I said, well, what is, sometimes it was like weeks later and I'm doing so many other things. I said, that's really nice. Who's that singing? <laughs> I didn't recognize it either. <laughs> so they actually help you to reinvent yourself, maybe in ways that you wouldn't because you wouldn't think that was possible for you. So I think it's really quite amazing what can happen if you can listen, if you have the opportunity to somebody to bring you something fresh and new and, and try it. And especially if they have the patience to work with you to make the transition to from who you were to who you can be now. And some, it wasn't really that hard. I just thought it was. But if I just went by what I thought, and of course, I'm in charge now, so I can do what I want to. So I got to give myself some kudos for saying, OK, that's who you are. And yes, you're a legend. Da, 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 da. <laughs> you put that aside for a second. <laughs> well, nobody's going to put that aside. Because everybody has, you know, a feeling of security about whatever it is they know. So I would encourage you, not just because you, maybe you're not a legend or anything, but you're a person and you have an ego. Right. And so it's going to be maybe difficult for you to say, OK, not my opinion. Can I listen to you? Because I want to encourage everybody. I don't know what their gifts are to continue to be able to evolve. That's all. Melba singing her latest So In Love. Last November, the single made some noise in the U.S. and spent three weeks at number one on the U.K. Soul Top 30 chart. The track is the first single from her upcoming album, Imagine, which is on her daughter Charlie Huggins' indie record label. The album and the song not only gave a nod to her daughter's talents, but also added some closure to a bitter divorce from Charlie's father. Married for almost 17 years, in 1991, Melba and Charles Huggins, also her manager, called it quits. The split caused a major royalties dispute that could have ended Melba's career and much more. In this next segment, we talk about all of it. The song is about really heaven and paradise on earth. If everybody could live in peace, what if? Imagine. 
you know, if there was no more war, if there was, you know, we could all agree. And it's written so beautifully. Regardless of what the rest of the album is, this should be what our theme is and what we want people to focus on, what, why we did this album. I mean, hopefully it will be released as a single because back in the day, the title was whatever the single was going to be. And usually it was a first single, but that's not the case here. It's just that the message is so strong and it really is my message now why I think I'm still allowed to be relevant. So in love is pure romance. I'm Catholic. We just celebrated St. Valentine's Day. And what I was a little bit disappointed in is that the priests were all talking about agape love and humanity and peace and everything. I know that's more important, but you know, if there was no romance, there wouldn't be no people here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got, and I'm mature now. I have a daughter now and I want her to have children and I, I need to be cognizant of my grandchildren now. And it's their turn to be romantic. So if I'm still allowed to sing a romantic song, then I want to be able to sing it with a certain reverence to for romance. It's not just sex. Right. But it's, it's not just <laughs> religion either. Yeah. That's what my heart is, is to use this privilege that I still have to sing a romantic song to lift romance high enough so that we can be encouraged to respect each other. That it's not all about porn. It's not all about getting some, each other in bed, but it's not so holy or it can't be void of romance and sexuality. Something I'm trying to say. <laughs> now, one thing, as much as you want to talk about this topic with this song and with this album, you're working with your ex-husband's brother, you were saying. I mean, we know that there was some adversity with some money issues. How were you able to finally come to terms with uh, I'm glad you asked that question because many, many people, all of us, have some issues where our religious leaders, and they're right, will tell us to forgive. But they don't tell you what the process is. And if your enemy who's done things to you that are just despicable and you're still suffering from them and you're in close contact with them, I'm already starting to talk loud and fast, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not easy. Right. One of the things I had to do when I knew that we were going to be in the same space again, I'm Catholic. So one of the things that we have, we have confession. So I went to, to confession. I said, okay, Father, now listen here. <laughs> I didn't come here to confess my sins. I'm going to ask you to forgive them anyway. But I have an issue. I need somebody to talk to. I'm not going to do a ritual. I need to come around this thing here where you can see me and I can see you. I got this issue here. This person is in my presence. And he caused us to be homeless. He caused me, us to be absolutely poverty stricken. I defile welfare. I think that there are a bad spirits being brought, in, brought back into my daughter and my possession. And I can't bring no priest over here now to exercise him. Right. Or me, if I catch these bad spirits and get a gun and learn how to use it and shoot him. Yeah. Of course, I'm joking. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the emotion is that. And the issues that you deal with are that. So I don't want to just say, okay, I forgive it. Because people are going through much, 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 much worse things than I have had to to do what we all know is right, but nobody quite tells you how to do it. Right. How do you forgive somebody that you are still suffering from some of the things that he did? I have a great manager now, but he's not what Charles was. Charles has certain special gifts that God gave him. And just because he did these terrible things, God didn't take them away from him. He still has these gifts. <laughs> 
And one of them is he is my daughter's father. Right. And that's that forever connection. Yeah. So you got to deal with it. So I just want to say that. And then I can tell you, I had the priest help and I sat in, in the confession. And he said, OK, OK, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, was over, I wasn't angry with him, but I was overtaken with what we've been through for like 10, 15 years of this. This is not like this happened yeah. a little while. And because the public hasn't heard about it, it didn't continue to go on. Yeah. And I'm also Catholic as well. And, you know, so you know, Catholic, what you can explain it. being Catholic and being black women, yeah. we're not supposed to show and, our emotion. We're supposed to be strong and we're not yeah, supposed but also to. <laughs> how the Catholic Church has really excluded us or not really. Right. Do- now they're finally starting to talk about it. I'm really shocked uh, about Martin Luther King. You know how long ago I was part of the, the, the marches with Stevie Wonder to help make his birthday uh, a little holiday. holiday. Yeah. You know how many years that's been? So it's a constant struggle for us not to keep things as they were, not to leave the church, or if you have to leave the church, but not leave Christianity. Right. Sometimes you need some fellowship. Like, I can't join the choir. I'm a star. Yeah. <laughs> Let Go me ahead. just tell you what the priest said. He said, okay, you're going to take it one day at a time. I said, oh, well, what do you mean? Just one day at a time, it'll be okay. And I'm going to bless you now. And I'm going to absolve you of all your sins. Now say, you know, God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended you. And it helped calm me down and let the Holy Spirit come back over, over me again. <laughs> and I'm telling people what my process is. I don't know what theirs is. But sometimes, if, if you can get some help sometime with what you're dealing with, because it's easy for me to say, Oh, dude, I don't know unless somebody helps me. So I'm saying, I guess I'm saying first, go get some help wherever it is. Would you like to go to your next question? (laughs) (laughs) I guess this is therapy for me. Yes, yes. So with Imagine, obviously we want people to listen to the full album, but are there any other songs that you want people to pay particular attention to? Well, we're still working on the album. I want to make sure that I mention Janice Dempsey and uh, Danny Pickering who wrote many of the songs on it, as well as Chantel Hampton. How did you find the team, the songwriting well, team, the producing um, team? Ronnie Harris, I've had with me since, since I was married to Charles. And I always kept him. I threw Charles away, but I kept Ronnie. Oh, we good. worked together on several different projects over the years. And, of course, my daughter just went back and grabbed him and said, you know, what about these two new songs that he's written with uh, Chantel. What do you think about them? So she brought the new songs, but I had always worked with Ronnie. So it was just, it was kind of, actually it's it's getting my team back because the greatest success I've had in music was with Bo and Charles and the teams that they put together. Well, that's nice. You were able to gather the same people because we, over the years you're here, there's so much strife and you know, you you were able to go back. Suddenly feel 
Next up, Melba digs into how Broadway started it all. Her first gig was in the original cast of Hair in 1967. Again, she replaced Diane Keaton and became the first African-American woman to step in for a white actress in a lead role on Broadway. They were still casting for the play and they were looking for strong black singers because they had this parody that they were doing on the Supremes and they need somebody to to sing this song called White Boys Are So Pretty, White Boys. (laughs) So if you don't know anything about hair, it was a show of parodies like that, making funny the the things about the culture that nobody ever talked about. As it, like for an example, Abraham Lincoln saying the Gettysburg Address was played by a black woman saying, happy birthday, Amy, baby, happy birthday to you. Four score and seven years ago. She made a joke out of it. And that, if you're too young or, you know, maybe black people didn't see hair. <laughs> It was a series of parodies on the important aspects of our culture. And it was the first play to have a nude scene. Okay. So it's historic and it's still like a. a Now, wait. Now, were you nude? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I grabbed the opportunity to try it. It was, we were in an experiment. Experiment, right. And so, yes. But an important thing about it for me personally, besides now having theater experience and my first theater experience, period, because I didn't study acting or anything, I didn't know anything about it. We were music students, <laughs> scholars, and teachers of music, but not theater. So, but as it turned out, they lost the, the female star. She went on to be a big movie star and they kept casting it, but they weren't happy with the people. So that same black girl that played Abraham Lincoln said, why don't you try some black girls? Well, she got to be white all the time. And she said, why don't you try, try Melba Moore? She's good. She told them they should try me. And they did. I got the female lead. But in so doing, I became the first black actress to replace a white actress in a lead role because I replaced Diane Keaton. Keaton, Right. That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I'm telling you that way because it wasn't just abnormal how it happened. Because I didn't really. Okay, let me tell you the next part. Because she said, "Okay." after I had done that for about six months or so, she said, "Okay, well, you've been in this play. You you didn't get in through the normal ways. So you don't really even know how to audition. She says, I auditioned for a lot of things. And she was an aspiring actress and she knew how you do it. So she said, you need to start while you're in this play and you have something going for you. I'll give you some information about where you to go to audition for other plays. It doesn't matter if you get them or not. Find out how it works, what the circuit is and learn how to audition. So the first one that I went on, she gave me the information. She said, now, first thing, you have to be typecast. I said, well, Mary, her name is also Laurie Davis. I said, well, what's typecasting? (laughs) So she says, well, you learn about the part, you get a script ahead of time, and you try to look as much like the part as you can so they can imagine what you're going to be in it. So if you really have a chance for it, you could do it. So I did that. But to make a long story a little bit shorter, the play was Pearly. And the character was Ludie Bell Gussie Mays. Of course, which I got a Tony Award for. But the reason I was able to play that role, that little country bumpkin, that's what she was so well, is because I told you my mother was a single parent. I don't know if I told you she was away all the time because she was a singer. So I was raised by a person, I guess we call her a governess or a nanny. And she was uh, orphan, illiterate, kind of shuffled from house to house as a child. And then finally, somehow she got up north, like many of us did one way or another, probably working as a nanny for some family. 
And somebody recommended her to my mother to take care of me. So she was like my mother. So by the time, well, of course, as Americans, we all have an, another country because we're all immigrants from here. Well, I could sound just like I was a sharecropper's daughter by the time. <laughs> and I had never been no further south than Jersey. <laughs> right, right. My point is that's how I got the role because I would just lapse into Mama Lou. Right. That was your, and she was your inspiration. Yeah. Right. And so I was so real in the role that it got me a Tony Award. And that was my entree into really the A-listers. It threw me into television. Eventually, I mean, I, I was on shows with like a B. Arthur, Rock Hudson. The live shows I did like uh, were the Waldorf, Palmer House, all the major supper clubs around the country. I was on uh, Johnny Carson, Ed Sullivan, every major, major, major top TV show because I was a Tony Award winner. And in many cases, you never saw black people on those shows. Right. Excuse me, don't forget. Flip <laughs> <Nick> Wilson. <laughs> well, yeah, Flip <Nick> Wilson. <laughs> I mean, just all the major TV shows, it threw me into stardom. And from there on, I guess that's when really my public life begins. Well, that's a and that's, great story. Me, that's essentially Broadway or theater. For right. me. I had other things after that, but that was the beginning. I was looking at your discography. I'm like, well, how many albums did she have? <laughs> well, gonna... now let me give credit to where that's to. That's Charles Huggins. <laughs> OK, I was like, good Lord. And when you look back at that period, I know there's so many and I know I've interviewed so many people who, who say, well, when you ask someone, you know, what's their favorite album? What's their favorite song? It's like asking what's your favorite child. child. Who's your favorite child? So I'm not going to ask that, but I am going to ask. No, I can tell you. Okay, tell me. (laughs) I can tell you why. Okay. It's Lean On Me, written by Van McCoy, because there's another one by Bill Withers. That's a great song, too. Right. But that one is because I was and still am a diehard fan of Aretha Franklin. I first heard the song when we had 45 records, and the A-side was Rose in Spanish Harlem, but on the B-side, which are songs that you just threw away because you know nobody was going to listen to the B-side, was Lean On Me. And every time I listened to it, I'd be in tears. (laughs) I still am. (laughs) And can I skip to something else for just a moment? It's still, I I don't know. I don't understand these things, but it still brings tears to me that she had to pass away. I guess I think people were great artists. They shouldn't have to die. (laughs) You know what I mean. It's just the love yeah. that you have that overpowers you. But just recently, her assistant, Earlene Franklin, who was married to Cecil Franklin, her brother, because he passed away early in his life, have invited me to do a tribute to her. I can't think of the name of the theater in Detroit. But all of this is because it's this one song. So, oh. yes, this is my favorite. So I'm going to tell you all of that. But but I can tell you all these things because it it is my favorite because it has so many meanings. And I realize in the passing now that I was thinking about my mother when I was singing because I, I realized now I didn't then that she was waning. She was getting ready to pass away. And it's the other reason why I have such a special place in my heart for Charles, because when we were dating, he helped to take care of her. And he had created the first record promotion tour that we were going to have. I think it was with Mercury Records. But we had to stop it because she passed away. When she passed away, it was his sister and his assistant, Ann Thomas, that were taking care of her. So all of this is tied to Lean On Me. Now, the, the musical part of it and the entertainment part of it, which is very, very important, but not the most important. important. 
is that when Charles, who was in charge of my career then, got Van McCoy and the record label, got Van McCoy to produce this particular record for me, we were interested in having some disco dance hits because he ushered in the disco era and he had the disco hustle. So Charles got him and the record company for me. And no, we had changed uh, labels by then with Epic then. The first label was Mercury. He, he got Gene. I can't think of his last name. We had I Am His Lady and those wonderful, beautiful songs when we're talking about Charles and my romance and we were married and in love and hoping to have our first child and all that. But this one was for dance music. And the first hit that we got on that one was This Is It. But when I found out it was Van McCoy, I made him record Lean On Me and my arrangement of it. Now, that's probably enough to let you know this is my favorite song. Yes. <laughs> and with and with good reason. Yeah. So I know we're running up against time, but tell me you're going to be acknowledged by President Biden. Oh, yes. And I got a call from a young woman by the name of Beverly Key. Now, that's important because during the, the times that I was suffering from the losses of my broken marriage, <laughs> uh, the broken life of my daughter, I was totally in the church world. And that's when I discovered that I was born again. I was not Catholic anymore. I was Pentecostal. I guess I'm a Pentecostal Catholic, Catholic. now. <laughs> but I ran across people like John P. Key, whom the gospel world, world will know as one of the kings of gospel. but. I never worked with him or anything. I never had that kind of talent, but I was touring with the gospel musical plays and living with people who were saved and everything. But the point is, they know my career, Beverly and her brother, John P., but they know me as a Christian and as a community servant. So they took the ball and kind of ran with it to getting all the credentials together to make me possible. And now it's going to happen to receive the president's Lifetime Achievement Award. So I'll be receiving that from President Biden on August 26th. But it comes from essentially community service. And that's exciting. And that also back in 2017 with your version of Lift Every Voice and Sing, you're also were entered into the um, congressional record as the official Black national anthem. Yes. And now I did that because. As a New Yorker, we didn't get Black history, or, so I didn't realize we ha even had a song that identified us. But I was traveling with Dr. Dorothy Height with the National Council of Negro Women because I saw her on the NAACP Awards, and I was free. And I, and I asked her, could I travel with her just to see what they did? And she invited me to sing for some of her prayer breakfasts that she invited me to. And, she, and I said, I didn't, I didn't have any music except my dance music, that wasn't appropriate for a prayer breakfast. <laughs> so she says, well, why don't you sing the, the Negro National Anthem? I said, well, what is that? She says, you don't know what that is. Anyway, she told me what it was. I found out what it was. I, I took it to my record company. And Scott Folks was the head of A&R. He was bl a Black person. He went and got B.B. Winans for me, who happened to be on the list. It was Capitol Records by that time. And then he got Cece, his sister. And Stevie Wonder and Bobby Brown and Take Six and all the people. Well, I thought if this is a hit, there are going to be a lot of people like me who don't know we have the song. They're going to think this is my hit record. So why don't we <laughs> make this all of these African-American artists 
And also, we, then we realized, we found out that the, the rights were owned by NAACP, so we got the permission from them to do it, and then we gave all the proceeds to them and made it really a, a community service project. So, and we had Howard Hewitt, um, Steve Wonder, Dion Warwick, I mean, the Clark. <laughs> I'm looking so at Anita Baker, all these folks. Yeah, Major Jackson. making major people, so it got that kind of attention, so that not everybody, but a lot of people know we have a national anthem. It is official. It's on record. Uh, Dr. Height uh, and Cedarlos Tucker got Walter Fontroy, who was the head of the Black Caucus at the time, to take it and actually into the congressional record, so that it is official. Correct me if I'm wrong. You've been Grammy nominated, but have you won a Grammy? Not yet. <laughs> well, I mean, so that's so interesting. Here yeah, you have I this, was up against this people. <laughs> Wait a minute. I was up against people like Tina Turner. I mean, come oh, on. I don't care. Dionne Wall, uh, 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 Diane Ross. <laughs> I mean, come on. Just but, to be I mean, the company, <laughs> I think it's pretty doggone good. I mean, especially, yeah. like, especially by those people, not by those people, but by that industry. Well, you know, she's Broadway. Melba Moore for our great conversation. Look for her new album, Imagine, in April. For more information on Melba Moore, her official Instagram is at Melba1More. That's at Melba, the number one, and more. M-O-O-R-E, at Melba1More. For more information on this episode, please go to undergroundmagnolia.com. That's undergroundmagnolia.com. Just click on this show and all info will be there. While on my website, you will also see all of my podcast episodes, which can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. So please listen, rate, and review them. Email me with anything at contact at undergroundmagnolia.com. Again, that's contact at undergroundmagnolia.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at UMPodcastDV. Again, that's UMPodcastDV. Till next time, this is Desiree Avalto, the only Desiree Avalto on the planet. For Underground Magnolia Podcast, I'm out.